I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, The Trade Guys and I hit the road to record in front of a live audience. We taped the show in front of the Center for International Business, Education, and Research Directors Meeting. The event was organized by the University of Maryland's Smith School of Business. Fear the turtle! We discussed the USMCA amid the impeachment brouhaha, and we talked about the US-Japan deal and much more. Rebecca Bellinger, who's the Executive Director of the Center for Global Business at the University of Maryland's Business School, Terrapin Station, kicks off the podcast. You'll hear all of that on this podcast of The Trade Guys. Welcome, Trade Guys, to this annual director's meeting of the Centers for International Business Education, or CYBE, program. There are 30 of us here today, and we all represent one of the 15 U.S. business schools that were awarded a Title VI grant known as CYBE after a competitive proposal process last year. The CYBE program was created by Congress in 1988, authorized under Title VI of the Higher Education Act, and administered by the U.S. Department of Education. Our collective goal is to increase and promote the nation's capacity for international understanding and economic competitiveness. Each of the 15 schools here serves as a regional and national resource to link the human resource and technological needs of the U.S. business community with the international education, language training, and research capabilities of universities across the country. We prepare students with skills to succeed in today's global economy, support faculty to conduct cutting-edge research, and bring international content into their courses, and build capacity in U.S. companies to compete on the global stage. Since so much of what we do today involves trade education, we are absolutely delighted to host you today for a recording of your podcast. Andrew, take it away. Rebecca, thanks so much, and thanks so much for having us. Trade guys, this is a really fun fact, but as you know, my son, my oldest son, is a freshman at University of Rochester. He's the freshman starting punter for the football team, but more distinguished than that, he has the same academic advisor that Rebecca had when she was an undergrad at University of Rochester. How cool is that? Two degrees of separation, as we call it. That's, that cool? that's impressive. Well, it, re- it reminds me a little bit of when I went to high school, I discovered there was one teacher there who was a teacher there when my mother went to the same high school 40 years earlier. One-room schoolhouse? No, it was a very, I was with a thousand people in my class. It was a very large school. The thing that was interesting about it was she was using the same yearbook photo that she used in 1929. <laughs> so, I hope most of the, re- the rest of you are up to date with your photos. Well, it's a beautiful audience. And thank you all for being here. Um, we're excited to be here. Um, we've got a lot to talk about today. There's a little bit of news going on in Washington, if you haven't noticed. Um, It involves some phone calls, but we're not going to get into that. The facts are the facts, though. There's an impeachment inquiry going on. There's hearings into what's happening um, with the White House. uh, And at the same time, USMCA, or USMACA, as we call it, is BACA. And what is impeachment? What's going to happen with impeachment and USMACA? Is it going to affect each other? What, you know, what are we going to do here? I'm in the group that doesn't think so uh, for multiple reasons. It's still on track. Just this morning, Ambassador Lighthizer met with the 
Democratic Working Group. Apparently, it was a positive meeting. Uh, the Democrats gave him a, a counteroffer to his counteroffer. Ways and Means Committee Chairman Neal said that his reaction was favorable. That was first read. I think they'll go back and digest it. But they haven't stopped. I mean, the, the, the process of negotiating an acceptable implementing bill continues, which is a good sign. The people that are doing that are a small number of House members. Uh, and really only, I think, one of them, uh, Chairman Neal, is going to be that involved directly in any kind of impeachment activities. So I'm not sure that there's a big distraction effect. Uh, and I think in an odd way, uh, in political terms, this actually gives the speaker a little bit more flexibility to, to move this forward. Uh, the way I thought about it a month ago was that in, running, rolling into the fall, she was facing three issues that, that divided her, her caucus. One was this. One was the budget appropriations process where they have to decide what to do about the wall and a lot of other issues that are problematic in the caucus. And the third one was whether or not to try to impeach the president. One possibility is she would go in three a, small things. Three small things, but you know she doesn't. She's and she's got a bunch of centrists in her caucus, and she's got a bunch of progressives in her caucus, uh, and she can't roll the same side on all of them. The fact that she's going down the impeachment road, which is what her left wing wants, gives her more flexibility to do some things that her right wing wants, and her right wing clearly wants USMCA. And I think what she's proved to be very sensitive to, because it's her top priority, is her moderate members who are responsible for her being in the majority in the first place. That's right. Because they took over Republican seats. They want this. And their constituents want this. They're telling the speaker that they need this for their reelection. They need USMCA. They need USMCA, yeah, not the, impeachment. The, the moderate. Yeah, they need, yes, they need yeah. USMCA. And she's listening to them. And the, the you know the overlaying argument too is it's in the Democrats' interest to demonstrate you know that they can walk and chew gum at the same time, and that legislating is not going to completely stop just because they're doing this this other thing. And if, if Trump stops it, which is what he threatened to do, not this one specifically, but if he st stops cooperating legislation, that's on him then. That's not on them. Well, there's, there's a parallel that both trade guys are old enough to remember, which was 1998. And if you look at, at that process, this was a Republican House and, and Senate and, and uh, President Bill Clinton. But from the filing of the Independent Counsel's report to the Senate acquittal, all taking place in 1998, the Congress was actually quite productive. They worked on a lot of bills. They passed a lot of legislation in that period of time. And so Speaker Pelosi is definitely committed to it. But it, it actually was done the last time that impeachment well, was a topic. You know, at, we're – I shouldn't say this. We're so old that we remember Nixon yes. too. I was, <laughs> I, I was working on the Hill during the Nixon impeachment the same year that Congress passed the Trade Act of 1974. Right. So the, the things can, can get done. And look, I think we, give, we need to give full credit to Chairman Neal of the Ways and Means Committee who I think has managed this process very carefully. His, the working group he formed has stuck together and have, has really been disciplined about the work. But I think, I think in terms of its ultimate success, it was the framing of Chairman Neal of that USMCA is simply an improvement of the NAFTA, sold it as an improvement, and says, well, what do you want? Do you want the old version or the improved version? That has seemed to have, have uh, gotten enough of his members enough of the Democrats in a place where they can approve this thing, that the president's party will provide the votes well, yeah, over the top. And I was going to say, on the other side, you've got Bob Lighthizer, who, who is not involved in the politics of impeachment. 
and so said Neil, so very clearly the other day. Yeah, yes, right. Yeah. And so, so, so Lighthizer and Neil are good partners yes. to hash this out, right? Yes, and they've they've both been very constructive in terms of resolving things. This morning's news, by the way, is that is that the uh, the the this House committee chaired by uh, by Ways and Means Chairman Neal, has made a, a counterproposal to, uh, in terms of changes to the agreement. And the USTR has, Lighthizer has accepted it, and the work continues. But the fact that they're still working back and forth, there there seems to be enough of a landing zone that they're in a position to converge probably this month or Although, October. you know, I'm compelled to remind everybody there are landmines yes. out there. They change, but the two biggest ones is that the president could torpedo the process if he decides to withdraw from existing NAFTA. We know he's been tempted to do that. He hasn't said that for a while. In fact, he avoided that question fairly recently when it came up. But he's been tempted because it's his kind of tactic. It would jam the Congress and basically tell them, you don't get to choose between the old one and the new one. You get to choose between the new one and nothing. And that would be gambling that they prefer the new one to nothing, which is probably which they probably do. Uh, the worst outcome for everybody, I think both parties, would be would be nothing. His advisors have told him not to do that because I think the Democratic caucus in that case would insist that the speaker pull the plug on the entire process and, 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 and stop it. Well, and let's face facts, though. I mean, the president did say on Wednesday, I don't know that they're ever going to get to a vote. He said, I don't think they can do any deals. So he has spoken. Yes, the master troll has spoken. Right. Okay, I think he's goading the speaker. He also said, I'm not sure Mrs. Pelosi is still the speaker. Okay, so, but isn't he the guy who calls all the shots? No. Congress is, a, is an independent branch of government. They, <laughs> they call their shots. So Yeah, but he, according to him, nothing happens unless he says it happens. First of all, nothing happens until less than until he submits a bill. Right. Right. So his move is next. The advice he's gotten is don't do that until these negotiations are finished and you've got a bill that, that you know in advance is going to right. make its way through. And is he going to hold that back the angrier he gets over yeah, well, every, the impeachment you know, situation? Every day there's a struggle about that. But it, it seems to me if you're thinking about what you want in 2020. He's made trade a signature issue of his campaign. He needs some victories. And he's got now two, Korea and now Japan. Now Japan, right. I don't think he's going to have China. Uh, he may say he will, but I don't think he's going to. But this one will be an important one to get this matters. And, you know, it's, it's a fair question. It's the same thing that Klobuchar said in one of the debates, you know, do you want to win the argument or do you want to win the election? He could make an issue of it and blame them, but that doesn't give him a victory. It really doesn't help him. And given no. his campaign site is all about promises made, promises kept, I think he sees a path forward that he's likely to be patient with, with uh, the Congress for the moment. We'll see. A, this this obviously changes daily. So. Well, and I want to talk about Japan in a minute. Yeah. But you're right. This changes daily. And I think this is something we're going to be talking about in Washington for a long time because... We're all about policy. We're talking about policy, yet now something extremely political is going on. And how is this White House and this president going to be able to separate the extremely political from the policy that they hope to get done to keep their promise? Sure. 
especially on an issue here where this seems like this is an obvious win. This is why we live here, Andrew. We have 50-yard line <laughs> seats <laughs> right. on the most exciting right. game ever. We do. So, and we do. Plus, we still have football on the weekends. So yeah. there's, there's greatness in living in Washington. The poor people in Washington, though, <laughs> have to suffer through the Redskins. I mean, the, but they do. They can get red zone. They can get the NFL ticket. They can go north and check out the Ravens. You know, what are you going to do, right? They can watch the Rochester game. What's your son's record, by the way? How's he uh, doing? Okay, so they're how's on, he doing first? He's doing then, great. Okay, <laughs> he he's he is playing extremely well. Um, they he's his in terms of net yardage, which means how, people returning on him, it's like nothing. Um, so he's doing, he's doing great. Um, the team is rebuilding, and uh, let's just say <laughs> they have not had a win yet. But you know. Every week, but he's optimism. a freshman and they're rebuilding. So that's right. That's all right. He's part of the the recruiting class that's rebuilding. So, um, should we move on to Japan? Because the president did have a vic- amid all of this uh, at the UNGA this week, the UN General Assembly on the sidelines of the UNGA, uh, president got a deal done with the Japanese. A very Trumpian one at that. It was a Trumpian deal. Tell, yeah. Scott, tell us about the deal. Well, well, first, this is something actually Bill, Bill and I had this conversation on a previous episode where we we handicapped an agreement with Japan versus agreement with Europe. As I recall, we both thought a Japan agreement was much more likely. A couple of things about it. First, I think Prime Minister Abe has a lot of popularity among his domestic constituency. So he is uh, far and away the most popular of the G7 leaders and has been for the last year. So he has he has the political elbow room to make agreements. But the second thing is the president has expressed pretty clearly what he wants in a trade agreement. And it's different than what we call trade agreements. In Washington, when you talk about a trade agreement, what comes to mind is the 800-page stack of papers that's comprehensive and reciprocal and covers everything from walnuts to racehorses. Now, the Japan Agreement does cover racehorses, by the way. <laughs> it's actually in the fact sheet. That sounds like a country music song, from there, walnuts there to racehorses. Well, okay, that's yeah. fair enough. It, yeah. cover, it covers <laughs> prunes, too. It, it does, does cover prunes. So so there, there's in every trade All agreement, the there stuff. is a country song. We just haven't teased it out of this yeah, one yet. Yeah. So, but, uh, but having said that, uh, what's, what's interesting about it is the agreement focuses on the things that were on the president's agenda – for improved market access and rebalancing the agreement. And secondly, they stayed within a lane where they already had the existing statutory authority to act. Look, the Trump administration committed an own goal when it comes to trade with Japan, uh, their second day of office when they tore up the Trans-Pacific Partnership and withdrew from it. Okay, this, this actually gets agriculture most of the way back to what they already had on day two of the administration, Does but, it, but, it's, yeah. but it's back now, it's, it, and that part's fine. In terms of the industrial part of the, the agreement, there is, there is some movement on tariffs, but within the authority the president already had, so he doesn't actually have to go to Congress on this. Finally, there's a, what, what, the, what the high-tech people consider a state-of-the-art chapter on digital trade, uh, where the U.S. and Japan both were seeking high standards, and they seem to have gotten it. Bill? I've characterized it as TPP minus. Mm-hmm. There's no rice. There's less wheat, I'm told, and less dairy than we would have gotten in mm-hmm. TPP. Yeah. Still no sugar. A couple other. <laughs> yeah, which we kept out of. <laughs> well, yeah, that was not their fault. Thanks. So it's a little bit less. I mean, net, it's positive because the farmers were were in a difficult position before having lost a lot. And it, you know, for the farmers, it was a double loss. Not only did they not get the benefits of TPP, that they were looking forward to, uh, the Japanese then proceeded in their negotiation with the EU to give them to the Europeans. 
And if you look at uh, data on EU agriculture exports to Japan, they're significantly up. That's access that, that our guys could have had had we stayed in. So they're happy, even though it's less than perfect. Appropriately for a Japanese agreement, there's a good bit of kabuki in it related primarily to the auto issue. Correct. What the Japanese wanted was a firm, clear commitment for the United States that we are not going to impose tariffs on autos. Uh, and that's not there. There's uh, some rather vague language about how we will each mutually respect our obligations under the treaty and take appropriate action. Well, that's good news. Yes. And <laughs> there was some verbal conversation in which I think Prime Minister Abe declared that he was satisfied that the United States was not going to impose tariffs. Uh, I think the best he ever got out of the president publicly was, we don't have any plans to do that at this time, which is not exactly a lifetime Rigging commitment. endorsement, yeah. Right. Of course, on the other hand, if, if you think about it and, and look back at what we did with Mexico, you know, even if you got something that was ironclad, can you believe it? In the USMCA case, we signed the agreement December 1st last year. Six months later, he's threatening cross-the-board tariffs on Mexico for an unrelated reason. He didn't like their, their migration policy. And a lot of people at that point start to ask, well, if he can do that, if you can make an agreement and then six months later just sort of announce you're going to violate it, what good is the agreement? I mean, what is good, good is negotiating? So, I mean, I'm sure the Japanese wanted a commitment, but I'm not sure how much you could – if you can take that to the bank anyway. But it's not there Correct. clearly as they want it. And I don't – we'll see if it gets any clearer. Well, how big of a deal is it for our farmers? Well, I think if you're – Look, it's better than the status quo. Yes. Okay. It's, that's what all the, all the press releases say. This is good news. So, $7.2 in uh, potential exports yeah, was so, the number that they used. So, so I think they, they probably got what they could and, and that it's net positive. Now, keep in mind we're living in an era where we've had five or six years of consecutive declines in farm income. Uh, so there are there are a lot of problems in farm country, trade being one of them, but there are other factors as well. So, but this I think is net good news versus the versus not having it. I mean, the critics will say, if you're determined to be critical, say good, but not as good as TPP would have been. B minus. Yeah. <laughs> Does it make up for our losses with China? No, not not, close, not, right? not at all. There, there are fewer people eating in Japan than they're eating better, but there are fewer people eating in Japan than there are in China. So, well, and they're all, all old, so they need soft food anyway. Yeah. So. <laughs> I don't know about yeah, that. But. It'll limit the beef for, limit the beef sales. Look yes. at it that way. Aging population. Chewing is complicated when you're my age. I hear you. I hear you. So, how let's talk about the digital front though. How important is the deal on the digital front? I think it's enormously important. It's, it's gold standard by everybody's admission. It is basically the same as what is in USMCA. It makes the right commitments on you know, prohibiting data localization, free transfer of data. You can't insist on access codes. It's, I mean, it's, it's exactly what they all want, and I think it will facilitate uh, much more digital trade. Yeah, not, the but he, the weakness is it's bilateral. Look, I mean, if, if you compare the interests of sort of U.S. firms in the space – with the president. The president wants to talk bilaterals because of leverage, and he, he loves his tariffs. Okay, What the industries want more generally is they want contestable markets. But the way you get contestable markets is rules. Forget the tariffs, particularly in the digital space. And so, great, we've now established, we, do, we did two things. First, USMCA, while not yet uh, in force, the USMCA digital chapter is quite good. Well, that's Mexico and Canada. And the now the digital chapter in the agreement with Japan is 
claim to be even slightly better. So great, but that's one economy. So what we really need is a little more focus on rules and broader, uh, broader expansion of those concepts and those obligations to really, I mean, that's, that's where business interest lies. I'm not sure we're going to get there anytime soon, but at least to start, it's, it's a good market to lay down. You know, something, can I digress a second? Of course. Something that, it's what we do. Something interesting happened the next day, actually, on this bilateral versus multilateral thing. You know, the president insists on bilateral agreements, and Scott just uh, described the limitations of that. Ambassador Lighthizer was asked about this in his press conference on Wednesday at the UN, and he defended the bilateral approach, said basically what he said is it's better for big countries to move bilaterally because it's easier to push around the other countries when it's one-on-one. And he acknowledged that maybe smaller countries wouldn't feel quite that way about it, which is, I think, an understatement. But the same time this was going on, you have to look at what we did in the Universal Postal Union, which is is, – a landmark of obscurity, but really important. The United States threatened – this is a multilateral organization. I think it's the oldest one. It dates back to 1874 uh, that regulates how mail is, is sent uh, internationally. Uh, and uh, the United States uh, some time ago threatened to withdraw from the UPU because rates that were negotiated a long time ago basically provide an advantage to developing countries. They allow them lower rates for shipping which meant then and still does now mean China, which means the cost of mailing stuff from China to the United States is much lower than the cost of mailing stuff from the United States to China. And in some cases, it's lower than the stuff of mailing stuff inside the United States. We had a legitimate grievance. I don't think there's a lot of debate about that. But this was a classic Trumpian tactic, which is we're going to withdraw if you don't do what we want. To say that convincingly, we sent Peter Navarro to Geneva to conduct the negotiations. And uh, lo and behold, uh, he won. Yes. Uh, They folded and they produced a compromise, but it's a compromise that lets the United States adjust the rates to the levels that we want, which is what the United States wanted. So this is fascinating to me because it it, it goes in two different different directions. One, it demonstrates that threats and bluster can pay off. He says exactly what happened. On the other hand, they did it in a multilateral forum, the very forum that they say is less successful. Yes. And it worked. Well, I think what you have is just that this week has been an expression of the president's policy. There are three planks, reindustrialize, rebalance, and reassert American sovereignty. And for me, the the postal, Postal Union was a reassertion of sovereignty I'm sure Mr. Navarro was had had instructions to withdraw if he couldn't get where he wanted to go. I mean, it was it may have been a bluff, but it, other people thought it was serious enough. Those are the three components of it. The president may or may not be right about reindustrializing the U.S. economy. There are lots of arguments about that, but that's what he's trying to do, and he does he he has become pretty consistent on those three those three uh, policy dimensions. Finally, on the U.S. Japan deal, I'm not sure I understand how the sides agreed on the auto tariffs and. Can you guys explain that to me? Well, basically, I mean, I mean unless unless you want to talk about the new Downton Abbey movie, I've seen it. I can. Oh, well, all let's right, go, well, let's go. Well, let's well, go well, with well, the well, autos. But I'll, I'll yeah. talk autos. Look, yeah. um, there's been a lot of controversy over autos ever since the launch of the National Security Investigation, which was now roughly 18 months ago, 12, 18 months ago. Yeah. Uh, and the key is the industry, in fact, looks nothing like it does in the president's imagination. Uh, it's the difference Imagine between that. It's a difference between an island chain and a matrix. The auto industry is a matrix. 
There are roughly 10 to 12 globally competitive companies who produce for a global market, often regionally in their production schemes. That's, that's actually the current industry structure. And so you look at Japanese nameplate brands like Toyota or Honda, much of their production that's sold in the U.S. is actually produced in the U.S. Sure. Okay. So, and the same with General Motors, a nominally American firm, and their production in China. It's almost all, all the cars. A couple of years ago, the Camry had the highest percentage of American content right. of all automobiles. Exactly. So if you imagine the auto industry as an island chain where you have American companies and Japanese companies and European companies, you, you formulate policy based on trying to strengthen the your American companies at the expense of the others. In fact, the auto industry is a matrix. So this is why when the president uh, opened the, or they opened the public comment period at the Commerce Department on the in, on the national security quotas, everyone opposed it. I mean, all the all the public comment was in opposition, including domestic manufacturers, so-called domestic nameplate. So I think he's the 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 his his desired policy is somewhat out of step with the reality of the industry. Thus far, the industry has done a good job of portraying why, in terms of both jobs and the positive externalities that the president seeks, the know-how associated with manufacturing, that you're better off with our current world instead of one that that raises tariffs. Uh, and But he also, ha I think the president had in his mind, this is a way to get people who don't want to negotiate to negotiate. So there's always, there's always sort of a tactical uh, angle here as well. So I think what will be interesting is how this plays out with the Europeans. I think the odds of of tariffs on Japanese manufactured autos, imported autos, is is low and, and getting lower. That, so that the odds are, are are improving for Japan's interests and really for American consumers' interests. It's not clear to me that that this deal is not going to happen with uh, with Europe, though. Partly because Europe, as a, as a negotiating entity, does not have nearly the political flexibility that Japan had in a single popular prime minister like uh, Prime Minister Abe. Right, because Germany, Germany, for instance, uh, Merkel doesn't have that kind of relationship. Well, with, and the, but the commission's in charge. Uh, they, they, you're negotiating with charge. the entire customs union. The commission's in charge. For them to get a mandate of negotiation would take months. So that lack of flexibility may lead to a confrontation there. But I'm, we're going to watch that carefully. So you're saying it's a good thing I already re-upped my Audi lease. Yeah, the, your, your Audi lease is probably, that was probably a smart move to good. get that done. Right, good yeah. deal. Good you, mean, deal. You, you mean you're not buying American, Andrew? Don't tell anyone. Shame on you. You bought from an American dealer. It'll be serviced I by did. Americans. Exactly. Financing uh, the corporation is American. built in America. Right. Whole so. deal. Same thing. Manufa yeah, it was manufactured. I just want States. to say for the record, I have a Ford. <laughs> he does. He's got, <laughs> Bill has a Mustang. Yeah. It's, it's a really cool car. Thank you all for being here today. Um, Rebecca Bellinger, thank you so much for having us back. Um, we will always come and do things with you. Shoot us a line at CSIS. We're all... W. Reinch at CSIS, A. Schwartz at CSIS.org, S. Miller at CSIS.org. We're happy to talk to all of you anytime uh, and come visit us next time you're in town. Thanks very much. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at CSIS.org. That's tradeguys at CSIS.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, trade guys. Thanks, Thank you. Andrew. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.